Okay, and we are live with our 33rd episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter. Um, joined by my co-host, Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome once again to Absolute AppSec. I'm going to sing us some intro music. Oh, no, never mind. <laughs> I, I don't sing that well. well. <laughs> yeah, we still haven't done that. I was just thinking about it. Uh, you know, we've been spending all of our time going to conferences and speaking and, you know, other things along those lines. Uh, both Ken and I were out at CactusCon this weekend. So if, if, if it looks like we're a little uh, behind the times, I guess, that, that would be why. At least that's, that's what I'm blaming my, you know, my haggard look on. I don't know about Ken. Yeah, I'm pretty, uh, you know... But hey, got that, got some uh, some caffeine. We'll 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 be good. And we're joined by, and I know, like we're joined by John Melton. So, which who I'll introduce in a second here. Um, so that's gonna that's gonna make it lively. That's gonna make it fun. Um, yeah, I don't think we should ever do. I don't know. I don't know if we should ever even do intro music because it's like too kind of. I don't know. It's like kitschy. It's like just. Eh, we don't need no, I'll, it. I'll, I'll just, just, I'll just make sure it's like the '80s electronic you know, like keyboard. So, you know, harken back to the days of, I can't remember those crappy uh, 80s fantasy movies, right? That that, that would be Stranger good. Things style intro, if anything. Okay. Like well, well now about. we're going into video intros. Gosh. No, 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 just the song. The, the, the elect- it's just what you said, the electronic kind of sound to it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so now you want one. That's what you're saying. Got it. Got it. Well, I mean, if we're going to do it, like that would be what I would go for, for sure. <laughs> I don't know. Sure. Now I'm going towards it because if do any of your kids play music that they could make it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, my, my, my daughter's a musician. <laughs> I'll see what I can. I can sort out. It might be bad, but it might be good. You never know. You should ask her and we'll see how it turns out. And and actually, even if it's not great, I like that would be at least original to us. So that's true. That's Which I mean, true. I'm sure it'd be great. It's your daughter. I'm sure it'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Objectively. Objectively, it'll be a nice boost to her confidence. Wow. So it, it, we, we've gone like three minutes and haven't talked any security stuff yet. So oh, right. Yeah, we should probably. Well, and and actually, before we do that, why don't you know? Why don't we share our experience from CactusCon? Um, I mean, like, you know, what were your favorite parts, Seth, besides my talk? Oh, your talk was awesome. Weird Al coming along, right? Uh, you and Chris Gates. I, I don't know. Like, uh, security conferences are interesting to me uh, from a general kind of hallway con perspective. Uh, it, those of you that know me know that I, I, you know, I used to work for a company that's based in Phoenix, so I get down there and I... I end up spending more time, like I am even repping my cactus concert, right? but um, I spend more time meeting with people and seeing people that I, catching up with people uh, than I do necessarily in talks. But there was a lot of good uh, training content. Um, there was, you know, they're your typical lockpick village. They had you build the badge, uh, which was cool, and then like update the badge. Uh, that's, that's always kind of fun at a security conference. It, it's more of a maker thing than it necessarily is specific to security um, but they're all pretty interesting uh, i don't know I, it, like definitely the highlights for me were you know hallway seeing people and seeing that community that's grown right i think there was about 800 attendees this year 
first time I went, it was probably like two to 300. So it's grown quite a bit. What about you, Ken? Well, Justin was asking how your workshop went. How, how, how do you feel that it went? It went pretty well. I mean, we had uh, traditional, you know, kind of workshop issues with Wi-Fi and then some sort of an IDS that was sitting between attendees and our vulnerable web app. Um, but there was a lot of good activity. I mean, we had a couple of young, like younger kids in the audience that were there with their parents and they were totally, you know, logging in, running SQL map against stuff and learning how to do, you know, hands-on web hacking. And so it was fun, right? I, like I, I enjoy that aspect and I enjoy interacting with people. So you, yeah, it was you, good. You enjoy that? Interacting with people? I you do. Interacting <laughs> with people? Mm, I don't know if I feel the same way. No, no. yeah. Well, like-minded people. Yes, you know. yes, there you go. I guess that's what that's what I should say, right? When it's a topic that I'm passionate about, then definitely, yes. Right? I've been to Walmart at 3 a.m. I don't want to talk to everybody. <laughs> oh, I see, I see. So what did you like about CactusCon? As you know, I've never soldered before in that blinking light, uh, you know, with the help of Chris Gates and uh, a couple people at the table there. I was able to solder my first badge together. I've always wanted to do this. So for me, that was like a big thing because I want to start uh, soldering with my uh, son and like building kits and stuff. And so uh, that was cool, man. That was really awesome. That they did that because um, they had for, you know, you're not if you're not there, probably not there. Uh, they had these folks that are just hanging out at the tables, helping you out, giving you walkthrough of the schematics, how to solder, um, showing you, you know, like they had like five or four irons per table. It was just really awesome for them to have put that effort in it to have done that. Um, that was my favorite part because I always wanted to do it and I never had. So that was that was really cool. Our talk uh, it was I mean, I I liked my talk, but uh, you know, ob again, objectively. Um, but yeah, the crowd was uh, crowd was good. Uh, you know, it was a it was a good time. So, uh, and then we learned that Justin Larson, aka Chicken Fingies, Chicken Fingies, Yay! Chicken Fingies. Yeah, he he's a big fan of the chicken fingers. So I guess he was out with to dinner with Seth and uh, another guy, Chris, and. Uh, asked for instead of chicken tenders chicken fingers so that was a whole thing the whole weekend so now he's his nickname is chicken fingies but yeah that was justin who was on a few episodes ago i guess we should get into some security stuff right so at some point right and then introduce john so we can actually talk talk to him and pick his brain so uh for our our uh, absec minute um hopefully i don't drop out here with lag seth uh you and i were talking you were describing behavior in an application that you thought was really yep. uh, uh, weird. And I, and I said, I only once, like never before that one time, never after at one time uh, came across the same behavior, but I had access to source code and I can say why that was happening. Um, so can you explain the behavior before? This is the learning moment, by the way, before we get into... Uh, uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a, so this goes back to, you know, using Burp Suite and watching, you know, traffic as it goes back and forth with the application, not just interacting with the application as it looks in the browser itself. Um, so it was, this was a few years, years ago. I was just doing a, a normal assessment against an application, logging in, accessing, you know, different content. I had multiple different accounts, including like an administration account, right? 
Um, and so all the administration endpoints I had mapped out, hey, this is where they exist. And I went back to do my authorization testing to see who could, you know, if I could get to those administrative web uh, pages without having logged into the application or being logged in as a different user. Uh, and the behavior that I was seeing was exactly what you would expect. I tried to hit like slash admin slash dashboard. And all I got was a redirect. Uh, the, the web browser itself would redirect me to you know, the normal login page because I wasn't an administrator, uh, which, which was all fine and good. And then I started to look at my Burp Suite history. And I noticed that my location redirects that were coming back from the administrative pages were massive, right? It wasn't just your normal, you know, few hundred, you know, kilobytes, not kilobytes, even just like tens of kilobytes, right? Because normally you just get a 302 redirect. It's the headers and the, you know, location response and maybe a little bit of HTML in there for a JavaScript redirect and that's it. But I was seeing, you know, massive amounts of data come back from each of the requests to the administration section. And when I actually opened it up, I could render those pages and it was displaying me full administration details such as the dashboard and other things like that without actually logging into the application. So the application was redirecting me and that was the instruction in the code, but I was still actually able to execute administrative functions as an unauthenticated user because of how the application was handling that redirect behind the scenes. This was the only time that I've ever seen any activity like that, which is the reason that I brought it up. Ken and I were talking about uh, you know, building the course, but that was the whole reason that we brought it up. And that was the interesting thing that Ken actually had the source. So Ken, what's going on behind the scenes? I mean, th this was like an ASP.NET application. Yeah, and I'm trying to put the, uh, the actual code because real simple. I don't know, I'm just gonna say login. ISPX. I want to say it was, we came to the determination it was false, but uh, okay, so I believe it was false. It was the, because uh, it defaults to true, if I'm not mistaken. So I put the, put it in the chat and uh, I'll put it in Slack too, but basically there's a little known kind of, well, little known in fact, in the, in the, in the sense that I didn't know about it. So if you, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Little known. So response.redirect, typically in a .NET app, you'll see this all over the place for redirection. And, and uh, what you typically see though, is like maybe you'll see the name of the page. So this example is response.redirect, you know, quotes login.aspx. And so that means you're gonna re redirect it to that page. Um, what you typically it's pretty sure it defaults to true. So when it's set to false, what ends up happening is instead of the kind of the flow short circuiting there, like literally it would just stop executing any code and perform the redirect and send the response back. When you give it a false parameter, it'll um, continue executing, executing the code. So although you're being redirected, the view page is still being, like the rest of that code that renders the view is still executing. So that's why you see it back in the uh, the body portion of the uh, 302 redirect. And as Seth said, at that point, you know, you can, can you can just change the uh, uh, the values of 302 in the location header. You can just change that uh, via like some substitution rules with burp to be 200 and uh, strip that header. So you just interact with the app as normal. Uh, so if you ever see that, you should definitely, I guess what I'm saying is you should definitely look for response.redirect. And if you see a second parameter of false, look at what, 
look at that endpoint because it's probably um, got some unintended security consequences to that uh, to that directive. So yeah, that was just the kind of it's weird because Seth and I have both only experienced it once, so that's why we kind of knew exactly what um, each other were talking about. So yeah. rare. I mean, and then this always goes back to you know like from a from a code review perspective, we're looking at source code and you see a you know response redirect like Ken is talking about. If you see flags in there that you don't understand, calling back to the documentation is always a good thing, right? Uh, even if it you know takes a little bit more time, if there are security implications, you want to understand what that is. Um, it's not always easy to get through all of that or to understand it all, but at the very least, you know there's uh, there, there's just a lot that goes into it, right? Um, but you do want to understand everything that's going into those uh, into those different security uh, the the security affecting endpoints right or functions and how it's interacting with the application. So anyway, uh, so that's the the AppSec minute for today. Uh, if you ever see if anyone out there has seen this behavior before, we'd love to hear about it. Uh, again, it was something both Ken and I have experienced, but only once over the course of you know 10, 15 years. So if, if anybody else has seen it or has you know seen it in the wild, it'd be interesting to talk about it. Awesome. Well, I have uh, just pasted in John's um, website and Twitter handle uh, into both chats. So um, without further ado, because we really do appreciate John's time and him joining us. Uh, John Milton, I mean, the, the the funny thing is from like two or three different, actually probably like three different people that I know who uh, I respect, they all called John like one of the smartest dudes that they've ever met. So yeah, I know you're laughing, but that was, yeah, no, that was genuinely the uh, like, the thing I kept hearing about John. And I finally got to meet John at a local MocoSec where he was speaking. And um, I'll put in the talk here that he was giving, but it was about building an AppSec uh, program, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, John uh, runs the, I think you run it, right? The AppSensor project. Mm -hmm. Yep. So John runs the AppSensor project for OWASP. And uh, he's given, you know, he's he smart guy. He's given talks at uh, AppSec USA, AppSec EU. Um, Again, I mentioned LocoMocoSec. Uh, so without, there's a lot more we're going to get into it. But without further ado, Johns, please say hi to everybody. Hey, everybody. Nice to see y'all. That's John's it? That's, that's all you've got, John? <laughs> Come on, man. Uh, I don't sing. I don't dance. Um, how's everybody doing? Thanks for having me. Uh, hopefully, it will be interesting. But you do appear <laughs> on guitars. I uh, I do not resemble the uh, comment about smartest guy. Uh, that's very kind, and I appreciate it. But I'm not sure who you've been talking to, who your sources are. Uh, yeah, the guitars. Um, so uh, I am what you would call musically challenged, um, and so some things you know in life come easy, uh, and, and those are great. But music is not one of those for me. But I am so enamored by people who are good at guitar. Uh, I own several of them. Um, but I don't play them well, but I keep trying <laughs> and, uh, me and my kids sing out of tune to them and it's a good time. So, yeah. Awesome. But, you got to keep trying, right. To get good at something. So uh, no. right. 
Yeah, but they look nice. They look like nice guitars. I don't know much <laughs> about guitars. They look nice. They they sound good when other people play them. So um, yeah. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, you know, one thing we always like to ask people, um, you know, basically we we always like to get into. And actually, I should probably mention like, did, so I know you. So John's worked at U.S. Bank. He's played blue team like with at U.S. Bank, Wells Fargo. Um, worked for the DoD for a bit. Um, and uh, white hat security did you guys get correct me if I'm wrong did you get acquired by white hat at some some point like it was you and two other people uh most of the information's correct but it wasn't me um yeah there were three guys uh that got acquired by white hat um and they had a static they were uh you know white hat's predominantly known for dynamic analysis uh years ago they bought a company that did static analysis uh it was a static analysis startup um, and so they bought that intellectual property, brought it in house. It was an aqua hire. I got hired by white hat like a month later. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. To come work on their static analysis, uh, product and build it out. So, um, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't part of the startup that got acquired, but I came over like a month later. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. The, the information was, uh, inaccurate, but yeah, ultimately like, uh, you, what were you doing there? You were setting up like static analysis rules or. Uh, no. So, um, yes and no. So I had two jobs. Uh, I ran the, um, R and D team, uh, that did all of the security and research and like you say, building static analysis rules and all that kind of stuff. But it was a little different cause it was from the perspective of the vendor. Um, but it was a unique situation. So most of the vendors at the time, um, were, you know, that you're familiar with, they were sell a big product, drop it in, you know, in-house and start scanning your apps. Well, the issue was the vendor had no visibility into what was happening. So they had to cover everything in the world. Uh, and White Hat was a good bit behind at the time um, because they hadn't been in the in the market. So the one benefit we did have was our deployment model, which was um, we deployed into your environment as a VM that was able to connect back. So semi closer to kind of the Veracode model where you do the upload, but we had a, we had a VM that was running in your environment. Um, and so the, the key benefit from, for that, from our research perspective was we could actually see the data in the scans that our customers were running. And so we were able to catch up super quick from a rules perspective because um, we could actually see what our customers needed and what languages they needed, what frameworks, libraries, all that kind of thing. Um, but also because we could write rule generation frameworks. Right. We didn't have to just do um, we didn't have to just do a rule at a time. Uh, we could we we were able to tweak our static analyzer to analyze libraries and frameworks themselves instead of applications and then generate rules for those libraries and frameworks and kind of build on top of each other. So that was kind of half of my job there. Uh, and the other half was actually writing the static analysis engine. Um, so I owned uh, the Java scanning engine at the time. Um, since I've left, it's been reworked, I think. And now it's kind of one of these, uh, Omni engines, but yeah, I got way into static analysis for a while, <laughs> learned way more about it than I cared to know. Uh, had to go back and read the dragon book and compilers and all that jazz. Uh, I got pretty decent at all that stuff for a little bit. Um, but yeah. Um, and, and the dragon book, uh, so the classic book for compilers is, got a picture of this like mythical dragon on the front of it. And so yeah. that's called the dragon book. Um, so, uh, 
Yeah, but the reason that I went to White Hat, actually, I had a good job, a good gig, um, and I was happy there, had good people, um, but I was I felt constrained by the tool set. And, you know, I took a chance at kind of going to build, uh, ha having the ability to write my own static analyzer was just too much to, to ignore. So I went over there uh, and it was a good time. It was, we were able to do some impressive things, some things I'm pretty proud of, but um, yeah. So I was there for, for about five years. That's cool. I, I mean, well, the, the static analysis stuff is always, I, I mean, it's super interesting to me on the, like the low level code perspective. Um, yeah. Like I did it, like I, I mean, my my degree was computer science, so you know we did all yep. the compiler classes and right, right, everything like that, and building ASTs. And I I always feel like, oh man, it'd be so much fun to get into it. And then the second I'm like, and like, oh, well, I'll build one for Django or you know some Python framework, whatever. It's right. always like, oh, yeah, there's so much work that goes into <laughs> understanding that that I'm like, I I can't you know I can't just do this in two hours, you know, a night here and there, right? Exactly. It's, Exactly. It takes and a dedicated staff. And, uh, yeah. I had this. I had this really long conversation with uh, Dennis Cruz when we were. I think it was in New York, and um, to the point of screaming at each other. It was the first time I ever met the guy, and we talked for like six hours one night. Um, and I love Dennis. He's super passionate, and that's that's something that I heavily value. But we were screaming at each other because he had come from Ounce Labs. Yep. And he had <laughs> left, and yeah. He had, didn't he, he did he did the whole O2 stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. Yep. And and he left Ounce and he said, you know, the one thing that we're missing uh, that's good is, or, you know, one thing we're missing in security is a really good open source static analyzer. And I'm like, yeah, you're you're still going to be missing that because who, who's going to write that, you know? Um, and you look at the work that Justin uh, Collins has done on Breakman. It's just, I mean, that is a labor of love, you know, like that, <laughs> that was a phenomenal amount of effort that, I mean, I mean, he he is unbelievably well trained in that area, and still, you look at the amount of time that he had to put into it, and he just, um, again, I love Justin, but he just punted on a lot of stuff because he's like, I can't, you know, it's an open source side project. I don't have time to. I know how to build this stuff, but I don't have the hours to build it. And so, um, yeah. But when you have access to a static analyzer that you can tweak, that is a killer situation to be in from the security perspective. Um, one of the things I was super proud of that we were able to do um, at White Hat was, you know, we realized when you when you do this, you have to give um, you have to give guidance and directives on how do you fix this thing. And our guidance and directives to make it halfway decent was, okay, you've got you know whatever the issue is, right? Um, you have to make it specific to the language and the framework, or it's kind of useless. You can't just say, uh, you know, don't allow, um, you know user input to land in output, right? Like you can't, that can be your solution for cross-site scripting. You have to give people directed good guidance. Um, so we put a lot of effort in that. And then we kind of realized, well, we have all this metadata when we're in the AST that we know, cause we're gonna spit out that data and we're giving you directed guidance. Why can't we just fix it, right? Um, so for a good number of data flow issues, we were able to actually, um, and because of our deployment model where we were, deployed in a VM in the customer environment, um, we could, and we, and we did, we had hooks into their version control system. That's the way the model was. We could do the whole, um, what was it? Um, SADB, remember SADB from Twitter? Yep, that and, was, that yeah. was Justin and, and Neil's project. Yeah, Justin, Justin Collins and again. And, and Alex, right, yeah. And, uh, and Alex so, Stamos, who was also on the podcast. Alex, yeah, Alex Smolin. Um, he, those three. Herb. 
small one. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we haven't had Alex Stamos on it, man. Right. You know, not, yet. not yet, it's, right? It's, <laughs> he's been on the mind because of the Facebook stuff. So I think right. that's why. Yeah, yeah. He, he might have a little more time now. Um, but uh, yeah, so so those three, I remember that was I was in the crowd for that. And I remember the the hush that went over the room followed by that was the first time I'd ever seen a stand and ovation at a security con. Like people, <laughs> the crowd erupted when they saw that. And, uh, you know, I think those three are still kind of dumbfounded at the response. But I mean, that's what people wanted. Right. Like that workflow of being able to notify people. So uh, we were able to do that. Like we were able to give actual patches on data flow issues, because when you think about it, when you have access to that, it's not really that hard. You're already doing 90 percent of the work. Um, we, we have a couple patents out of it that where we went back and I mean, there's some work to do, don't get me wrong. Um, but commercial companies have the time and money to do that work. Right. Uh, and so I think, I think we should expect them, uh, to do those kind of things. So that was, that was fun. Well, so how did that be, it was a dashboard, right. For like collection of, uh, I mean, I've seen the, the talk, but it's been a while since it, I think it's been like five years since they gave it that I yeah. remember. So yeah. Pay dirt in the app, pay dirt in that talk was you pushed a commit and sad B would email you, you broke the commit and here's where, right? Like that was what everybody went crazy about because, you know, um, and where I'm at now, like we don't necessarily cite issues in 30 minutes or an hour or even a month, right? <laughs> like when you're yeah. triaging and vetting these issues, it, you may have an extended period of time. If you've got hundreds or thousands of applications, um, the automated, Getting it back to somebody super quick and, you know, I mean, there's lots of ways to do that um, in CI or, you know, even in the IDE, there's a lot of tools now, uh, but getting it back to the person when they're act, when it's fresh in their brain is, is obviously the way to go. Um, and that was the first time I think anybody had connected all those dots and it was just, uh, it was a killer demo. Yeah, they, I mean, yeah. <laughs> It's funny how unassuming they are about some of the work they do too. Like they're like, right. oh, yeah. and actually, it's funny that you mentioned that. Uh, you're right. Justin punted on a lot of things with Breakman, but in the end, what's funny is that it's such a better tool than everything else. I mean, part of that's sure. obviously because the Rails is very opinionated. Yep. You know, Seth and I have talked about this. Where the framework's just so opinionated that like you can be pretty. Uh, but not to diminish at all, like the fact that he's built something that's much better than expensive tools but um how i mean one question i have is how were companies not like so they were okay with code you having access to their because typically you know like companies can be pretty uptight about that about having access to their so i mean obviously they're paying you to do a static analysis you know yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah, you're so in their environment you know what i mean like it's different because you're you've got an exception Yep. So, so there's, there was kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> um, I, I am not a salesman and you should never put me in front of people. Um, I am <laughs> certainly on the engineering side where I will tell you the truth, even if it kills the sale. Um, but I was always dumbfounded by, I'm, I'm still caught off guard by some of the things that security people will go. Yeah, let's, let's bring that in house. Um, White Hat went to, uh, they did a lot of effort in, trying to make sure that uh, the a lot of security boxes were checked. So these were hardened VMs and they were they were sandboxed from the rest of the environment and the credentials we always made sure were read only credentials and they were, you know, um, uh, 
kind of VCS specific and, you know, each user account, we, we did a lot of things to try to make it as minimal as possible. Um, and it was a little bit different from like Veracode where Veracode, you were shipping all of your binary or all of your source code up to the cloud, right? Um, so for ours, it was similar, but you weren't shipping all of your stuff. It was just the vulnerable bits, <laughs> which I always thought, like people were much more comfortable with that than shipping all of it in sales pitches. And I'm like, I don't know that that makes sense. Like <laughs> you've literally just given the directions, you know, like you've, you've thrown away all the fluff and said, this is the only, um, but yeah. you know, so, some people said no, for sure. Some people said, we'll never, we'll never buy anything that looks like that. Um, and then time has proven them wrong, right? Over time they've gone, well, you know, the product is better. We're able to find and fix things better. You're able to give us more information. And, and, I'm not just talking about white hat. There's other vendors that are that follow the cloud model. Um, and when it first came out, they said absolutely not. We will not ship our code, you know, up at all. Uh, and now they do it constantly. <laughs> right? I mean, it's so. a good point to make that. Like we've, I mean, uh, I don't know how this is sort of connected, but because um, we've we've seen that shift where we're more comfortable exposing ourselves to a bit more risk for the. Uh, yep. But the benefits we see the benefits there and it, you know from a business standpoint it, yep. um, it's just like seth and i were talking about uh you know how like we've at dinner at cactus con how we've all gotten comfortable with like putting you know alexa nest cams in our houses and all these listening and, and viewing devices, <laughs> you know we're all accept we're all accepting the well <laughs> yeah we have i guess not you not everybody Oh, we become, I mean, on the whole, we'll say we as like That's right. US, we become more comfortable with exposing ourselves to uh, risk because the because it's convenient. And, um, you know, the risk of us uh, being, the, the risk outweigh, the benefit can outweigh the risk. Like That's if right. you're on vacation and you've got cameras inside your house, you know. For sure. Yeah. Yep. You know, it's, it's helpful. So anyways, yeah. So this was. Yeah, we Someone we always did. wonder that question about actually pushing, you know, pushing data. Um, you know, I, I think back to my time in the, you know, working at a bank and that was always the, well, these are the keys to the kingdom. So it can yep. never go anywhere that's uncontrolled. Right. And then, and then I would look at the systems, you know, they're storing it on some old, <laughs> you know, Windows 2000 file server that's got every, you know, I'm Absolutely. Like, you realize that anybody <laughs> that's on our network already has access to this code and it's, there's so many exfiltration points that, you know, if I go yeah. to somebody I trust, yeah. I, I mean, there's definitely a lot of education that goes into that when you're talking to sales people, when the salespeople are talking to to different companies. Yep, I remember. Uh, I remember. I remember we had a uh, at a bank uh, one time, and this was not the bank that I worked for, but um, it was somewhere where we were doing some help. Uh, they were they were worried about the same issue, and then we found out that they were doing backups to disk or tape, and then they were literally because the network that they were on, the WAN was so slow, it was easier and faster to ship the tapes, like drop ship them in. UPS and get them, you know, across the country. And so they were putting them in like a UPS envelope and shipping them. And I'm going, this is, this is all of your stuff. <laughs> you know, like how, how are you comfortable with this and not with this? You know? Um, yeah, we, we are not good. I won't say we, um, we are not generally good at critical, critical thinking um, in the abstract. 
that's why threat modeling, I think, is important because it forces you to kind of go down and probe paths and do it purposefully. But yeah. Yeah. And what's yeah. funny is, you know, it's even kind of advice, right? Like, oh, you need to, uh, you know, have some for redundant. And actually, it's even part of so like SOC 2 is the redundant. I mean, Seth, you and I yeah. dealt with that. It's like the redundancy piece yep. and offsite backups. Yep. And so from somebody's you're right about critical thinking because to somebody that's like, yeah, that makes sense. We want, we want redundancy. We want it. If something, if a fire happens here, we don't want, you know, our machines to be lost. And right. at the same time, you know, okay, well you have a problem giving me snippets of code, uh, you know, right. <laughs> right. Cool, man. Yep. Good thinking. <laughs> so. Yeah. There's, there's a number of those things that make you scratch your head. No, for sure. We, so, uh, oh, sorry. sorry go, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Oh. Nah. <laughs> I you was first. Gonna ask. Okay. No, I was just going to ask. Right. You know, I, I think we kind of got off track. You were getting into your your background, oh, and we yeah. jumped. We jumped on to SAST, and then. Yep. Sorry. You know, just um, but no, no. Yeah. Tell us what you're working on now. What yeah. your current interests are. So. Yeah. Let me. Uh, I, I'll tell a really quick origin story. Um. So. I came, I, I came up uh, like you at Sound Seth uh, in in CS. Actually, I came to college, and I don't have like uh, super impressive. I started at eight years old on you know uh, turtle logo or something like. I think I played Oregon Trail. I went to an inner city school. Um, we had one computer, and I played Oregon Trail, and that was the last time I touched a computer until the summer before college. Um, even in high school, when we had to type things, my mom, uh, types something stupid, like 80 words a minute or something. Um, she used to do di dictation as part of her job. And so, um, she, I would hand write my papers and she would look at them like this and then type them. And I, I just remember thinking, there's no way I'll ever do that. Um, and then I went into, I was going into engineering double E actually. Um, and I went to like the summer orientation and heard the spiel from the double E and at the time CS was part of engineering. Um, and I remember being so bored by the double E presentation and actually interested in CS. I switched my major, uh, and learned how to type that summer. Um, and so all of it was just fascinating to me and just the idea of building things and making stuff work and getting this thing to do, you know, having an idea in my head and getting it, getting the machine to actually do it was fascinating to me. Um, so I didn't come into it necessarily from the kind of the breaker perspective. Um, but I found I had a, a knack for, for it because I could tell other people what was going to break in their program, you know, just by kind of doing code reviews, um, and helping them out and going, well, I could, I could break it if I did that. Um, and so I took some undergrad, um, security courses and then I had a job lined up and this was during the dot com bubble burst. Um, and it was with a startup here in kind of Charlotte area. Uh, the bubble burst, that job went away. <laughs> and so I was just fortunate that I had a, uh, I was in a class that was uh, an elective security class. And um, there was like a flyer that they sent home that was about the government would pay for you to go to grad school if you would come work for them for a couple of years. And I thought, well, you know, the economy sucks. There's no jobs. You mean I get extra schooling and a job? This is perfect. So uh, signed up and it's called the SFS or Scholarship for Service Program, which I think is still uh, running pretty strong. Um, but it was trying to get, you know, kind of blue teamers, information assurance people into the government because uh, a lot of them at the time were retiring. Uh, so I went through that program, ended up going to work for uh, the DOD for a while, 
uh, left there, went to, uh, and I did predominantly, even though there's a lot of security there, I did uh, kind of some security architecture and then uh, development work there. Went to another gig where I built, did some software development work. Uh, and then I went to a bank and did pure security work, code review. Um, which was a lot of fun, and you see a lot of, lot of interesting things. So, um, yeah. And then I went to White Hat, and then I came to. Uh, once I left White Hat, uh, I had been doing it for a while, and it was a great job. Uh, I liked it, but I wanted to change, and so I went and started running a security program at a company called NetSuite, uh, and they recently got bought by Oracle. So that's where I work now, uh, but I still work for NetSuite, um, and so. <clears throat> NetSuite was a company uh, that technically, I guess you could call them a startup, uh, but they'd been around for about 20 years. Um, and so they were more established and they had bought a startup um, here in North Carolina and they were more true startup feel. Um, had a really good engineering squad. It was uh, it was kind of the, the cloud microservices stuff and NetSuite was not necessarily that at the time. And so they, they didn't want to kind of impose the other, the, the older security model on this newer group. Um, and so they brought in something, somebody specifically to deal with that. So I went and started up a program there. Um, and now I'm running security at, at NetSuite proper um, and starting to kind of poke my head into the rest of Oracle, which is uh, massive and interesting. So when you say um, running security, what do you mean? What does that entail day to day? Uh, so uh, most of it is, well, it's a, you know, it's a, AppSec, product sec uh, kind of role. So it's it's us as AppSec people embedding with the development teams and engineering and um, you know product and program management teams uh, to kind of cradle to grave from thinking about a product and whether or not we should do it and talking to them about privacy and legal and all that kind of thing. Um, uh, our, our team, I, I run the, the engineering team. So the, uh, the pen test, test team lives outside of my group, uh, but we work obviously really closely. Um, and uh, they're, they're kind of a sub team, I guess you'd say, uh, our internal pen test team. Um, and so mo most of what we do is trying to kind of plan for how we're going to make the product more secure. And that, that goes from uh, planning in security features and building features into the product as a security team. So we we write code. Uh, it it go, goes to doing design reviews and consulting reviews and threat modeling, working with product teams as they build features out to make sure that they design them to secure, securely. Uh, static and dynamic analysis to test the products uh, once they are being built or are built. Um, uh, testing them in, in production, dev, everything, monitoring, incident response, all that kind of stuff we contribute to. Um, so we, we have a, a good bit of, uh, of purview. And then obviously looking at products to bring in to help us, products or tools to, to help automate all the stuff that we're doing. And now is this how your, uh, your talk at Local MochaSec came about, your uh, building AppSec program? Yeah, it's, it's really, that talk is kind of a, a retrospective on two years of I came in the door and I thought this will be easy right like I was at I was at the bank I did a ton of code review right I did a bunch of code review some testing pen testing that kind of thing uh, I went to White Hat obviously we had a lot of pen testing going on there I'd seen products from every vertical and uh, every kind of quality level and all that stuff I knew what went right I knew what went wrong I knew how to make you know, I, I'm a developer. I know how to build tooling. 
this should be easy. I should have it knocked out in a couple weeks. Um, and I got there and I was like, Oh, sweet mercy. <laughs> like this is, this is unbelievable. You know, it's, uh, and, and it was with a great team. That's the thing is like this team wanted security, uh, incredibly intelligent and smart, um, good practices, like all the things that you would want really solid quality team. And it's still, you know, it's still terribly difficult. Um, so that, that talk is really just two years of here's what I came in and thought I was going to do and, and how I thought it was going to go. And here's the roadblocks that I ran into, or here's the thing that I ran into that, you know, just knocked me, knocked me over. Um, like, I think the most significant thing to me is, um, and I, I think something that most of us don't talk about a whole lot is application inventory. Yeah. Like that is such yeah. an atrocious problem in our field. I mean, if you look at a place like Oracle, um, they've got, I, I don't even know the exact number of internal, but at least external, they've got thousands of products externally facing all on different release cycles, all in different technology stacks. Like, how anybody keeps track of that in one central place is unbelievable. And, you know, I mean, Oracle's been around a long time. They've got every VCS system you can think of and more, right? Because they've written some internally. They've got internal, you know, uh, databases for this, that, and the other. Obviously, there's spreadsheets galore. Like, the data's tracked all over the place. And you probably could find every bit of information you need. It's just not in one place. <laughs> and not one person knows it, right? So um, even on a small scale, it was debilitating to me. Uh, to to think about like you know we have dozens or hundreds of apps like how do I keep track of all those and where they're at and what's going on with them it, it was horrible yeah and the interesting thing is though and not everybody's gonna agree geez I keep hitting this thing I need to fix it hold on uh, I don't know it's just driving me nuts anyway so <laughs> the question is do you do you I've had this question recently mm. um, do you actually need to inventory all those apps? I mean, th the reason I say that is one of the one of the reasons I believe my manager is so successful is he said these are the things we're first of all, what you can do is put the important stuff, the stuff that drives the business all in the same infrastructure mm -hmm. and then completely outside of that infrastructure. Like for us, it's easy. We've got a data center and we've got the cloud. Right. If it doesn't matter in the sense of like, it doesn't, it's, you know how this happens. And this is part of the inventory management problem is an app just gets built for, cause it right. seemed like a good idea. And then it just gets thrown up. And it's not like what powers the business. It's not like, you know, if it goes down, it's not going to like mean a, a ton of money goes out the window, but it now exists. And now it's part of your risk profile. We'll say, sure. but if you can, say, hey, if it's one of those apps, not a business yeah. critical app, it goes into, we'll say the cloud. Yep. And never, and even if that's popped, there's no chance of it getting, you know, you getting into like the data center or getting credentials that really matter off that box. Like let's say you get remote code execution or, you know, you get a reverse shell via command injection, whatever the case is. What's the real, like if the data stored is not that important, if the reverse shell that someone's getting just means that, you know, I don't know, maybe they'll get access keys to spin up another, you know, maybe put your bill up to a certain amount for that, whatever. Like the risk is not super high. Then it becomes, a, I, I've genuinely wondered recently, does it even matter anymore? Do I just care about, care about like these, this little circle of things? And I think that's why my manager's uh, so successful is that he, um, that's been his approach is like, these are the things that give us money or make us money. 
that's what we're going to give our attention to. But like, you know, everything else we'll work with as we have cycles, but whatever. Yeah. So, um, so I mean, like, like everything else, right. It, I think it requires critical thinking and it's, it's a nuanced answer in my mind. Right. So GitHub's been around how long? Uh, since 2006, I think, or 2005, something like that. Okay. So, but like not really popular, I think around 2007, it started gaining traction. I could be wrong about all of this, by the way. Yeah, that's fine. But I mean, you know, like, um, your, your company is, is barely graduating middle school, right? Like, uh, Oracle has been around and you think about the banks, they've been writing software since the forties and fifties, right? Like, (laughs) I mean, it's a different state and, you know, um, like as one example, uh, since I live in Charlotte, you know, a lot of a lot of the companies here are finance. Um, I know that historically Bank of America has always run their IT departments very centralized. You had to come through one gating process if you wanted to do anything. It all had to come through one place. Um, and that's a business decision. And there's drivers for that. Uh, Wells Fargo, on the other hand, when they would acquire a company, because everything in finance, the way they grow is by buying other banks, the way the way that they would run things is they would leave them there and let them kind of run as a little island. So you you ended up with this super heterogeneous environment, which has pros and cons. Um, and so I think in some cases, I think being in the cloud helps a lot because now you have a programmable data plane, right? Like you can ask questions of your infrastructure. And if you know the person or you have access to all of the environments that are created in your org, you get a lot of wins there. Um, and obviously Oracle and NetSuite both have cloud and data centers. So there's there's some places where that helps and hurts. Um, but the example I'll give you is, um, oh, I'm gonna forget his name. Um, Paleus Yuli, and I don't know if I've got his name right, or hopefully if, if somebody can help me, it's uh, P-E-L-E-U-S-U-H-L-E-Y. Um, and I don't know his exact title or role, but I know he is very high in security at Adobe, and he's been there forever. Uh, incredibly smart, smart guy. Um, and I saw him give a talk a couple years ago where he talked about this very problem. And he said at Adobe, and I forget the exact numbers, but it was in the thousands or tens of thousands, he said they've acquired over years lots of these companies and applications. Um, and he went and did some kind of, uh, you know, Tiger Team research project. And he ended up finding out that he knew about 40% of the applications that they actually had. That was what he knew about, 40%. So that means 60% of the infrastructure. And that's just the stuff he could find. That doesn't mean he got all of it. But the number that he landed at, you know, he 60% of that was new, net new. <laughs> Now, you know, even if it is, even if the sum of that, to your point, is mostly unimportant applications, they're not the real, you know, billion dollar drivers for Adobe or whatever. I got the, I get the feeling that there's probably still something that could ruin their day, (laughs) you know, like something could screw them over in that, you know, 12,000 applications or whatever the crazy number was. So um, I think for some companies, you're probably right that you could just, if you've got good practices, um, you, you could probably solve it in a number of different ways. But I think for in particular, big enterprises that have been there a long time, they need to get a better handle on it. They just literally don't know the answer um, and they don't know how to get the answer. I don't yeah, know how we're supposed problem. to be polarized and take a hard stance and dig our heels in if you're being so reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Well, we all know that Ken works in an AppSec wonderland or fantasy right. land. So exactly. let's just, let's, let's take it back. No, uh, 
Like also, I'm, I'm, I'm like you, John. Word. Like what? I should say I'm like the worst employee too because it's ten years as of like April 2018, so it's like 2008, and I think I think <laughs> it came out in like 2007. So I'm an idiot. I'm over here googling, being like, oh man, I'm so wrong. <laughs> It's anyways no. back to uh, shitting on me some more stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're doing. No, no, what I, like you know, like I would love to have that list. That's always been my you know my big issue, right? Like working right. for working in finance as well. Yeah, uh, you know, a company that's been around for 20, 30 years that's moved platforms multiple times. Yep. Um, I mean, I, I like I get Ken's point that there is like like the risk profile is definitely where you want to be from an application security perspective, right? Hey, we look at, we look at our application and we're like, all right, or we look at our business and we say, these are the things that we should concentrate on the rest of it. Guess what? If somebody pops that box, that's great. We're going to mitigate our risks because there's one true way to actually roll out an application and that's where we know it's at. Um, but then it's the it's the little things that you don't know about that end up biting you and get and killing you as a as yeah. a large organization, right? right. I, I mean, you look at Facebook recently, right? That's what's been in the news the last couple of uh, weeks or last few days, I guess I should say. And you know, the way that somebody could access tokens, um, they were doing everything right, uh, at least you know what they expected, and there was a, there was one small path to actually get that back out. Um, Granted, it was their security team that actually caught it, uh, but only after it, it seemed like someone was extracting tokens, right? Right. Uh, so, so like I, I look at that problem. I look at like all the different development teams that are the, that are at an organization. Uh, smaller is definitely better. It's easier to you know enforce those restrictions and then be able to say, hey, guess what? We're okay with that. We're okay with that risk. But. Yeah, I, I have a hard time saying that that's all right. That that, right. that it's it's gonna it's, it's gonna it's gonna catch everything that I need it to. I think you actually make a good point because, like, even if you put everything, like, let's say, oh, the app doesn't matter, and you put um, the problem is, is that if you don't, you don't, if you don't know about it, you don't know if it matters, right? I guess that's because yep. you're talking about exfiltrating tokens, and that could be easily something that, you know, I don't know, like it's an OAuth or a SAML app, right? And it's got tokens that it's stored to like do things, you know, access certain resources. And then like, you don't even know about it because you don't know about it, right? So it, it, I guess, I, yeah, I can kind of, I can see the point there where it's kind of like, you can't just shove it into one uh, piece of infrastructure and say like, yeah, yeah. it's not a problem d definitively if you don't know about it. Yeah, I mean, the engineers come to you and write, like most of the time the engineering does want to work with security, especially the last, you know, five, six years, there's definitely more of a congenial attitude between those two organizations. Mm. Uh, but you still get third-party apps that get stood up. You still get random stuff that, you know, somebody buys for marketing and then throws on your internal network. And yep. Like, I, I don't know how to solve that. I, I mean, so at, at NetSuite, like, as you're there building this application security program, I, I mean, I know what I've done in the past. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that, like, uh, Vericode and others will actually scan IP addresses or IP blocks, tell you what, what's running on port 80 and 443. But, I mean, that's still not a guarantee. So what have you done at NetSuite? Like, how, how have you approached that problem? 
So, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, we're we're throwing throwing darts, man. Like literally, I, that's all I know to say is. Um, so, I mean, some of the some of the ideas we have, right? Um, and and we're making more or less progress on some of these. Um, uh, obviously, things like centralized logging are a big deal because when you when you have most applications have logs. Um, and they can at least feed some form of metadata to you. Um, and we haven't had too many applications because, like I said, NetSuite, in our, in our particular case, um, NetSuite's not crazy old, right? Like it's 20, 25 years old some, or 20 years old, something like that. Um, so most applications had logging that was um, either close to centralized or already done. Uh, so we've made sure that we've we've invested there and got a platform for doing log analysis. And the other thing that that buys you is if you've got some automated either um, log analysis tooling that you want to write that can that can read from that. Um, and so I'll just I'll paper over that whole conversation with saying um, mentally shove it into a Kafka cluster. <laughs> And then that way you can pull off that cluster anytime you want. And then normal logging processes or, you know, Elk or Splunk or wherever you need logs to go can go. But if you've got it in that queuing system so you can um, attach another reader to it, you can start writing your own tooling. Um, and for large sets of data, um, you can do some kind of either basic statistics or if, if you're more savvy, you can do machine learning and that kind of thing uh, to actually get some stuff like that. With, with AppSensor, actually, a few years ago, uh, we had an intern um, she she did a machine learning project and that was fantastic and we we had a guy from Microsoft who did this in Microsoft's environment cloud environment who helped us mentor thank goodness <laughs> because we didn't know what we were doing uh, and he walked us through and said these are the problems you're going to run into and sure enough these were the problems we ran into even on just you know open source data we were able to use uh, so I think logging is a big deal um, pushing orgs that are comfortable into the cloud and and making a paved path for that th that I think is really helpful because you have more you have more capabilities there um, and you can anytime you have a queryable platform like that's that's a big win for security I think um, so that's been big uh, pushing everybody onto trying to get onto common CI systems uh, has been big for us and then investing our effort as an engineering team in putting tooling in the CI systems. Uh, one of the things out of my Locomoco sec talk uh, that I think was helpful was that kind of blends a lot of these ideas is uh, the attack surface analyzer. Um, so that's a little um, side project that I have, but basically what it does is it will um, and it, I think the the one that I posted online um, that you can pull just works for JAX-RS, but it's pretty easy to see how you would port that to your own language or whatever. Um, but basically it, it exposes routes. So every time you scan your application in CI, it will spit out a text file that has the routes. And so that, get, that does two things, right? It feeds our dynamic analysis team or either tooling or team to know these are all the routes. You don't have to go probe and guess what the routes are. These are the ones that the application serves. So just feed that into Burp or Zap or whatever you're using. It also tells our application security team because we have really high-end tools like Diff that can look at a two, two text files and go, this is the differences. Um, we get notified when the application developers change something, right? So if between this release and that release, there's seven new endpoints and we didn't get asked to code review those endpoints, we can go, that looks important. They added it something that has token in the name. Let me go look at that and see what that is. Um, so 
you know, uh, I think logging is important. Being in the clouds important. Um, if you know, if you can swing it, uh, there's also um, a lot of, I'll say, nascent tools that are starting to pop up um, in this space. There's a couple commercial vendors that are trying to play in this area. Um, they're really, really early days, um, but what most of them are doing is taking these open source data sets and somebody like, you know, um, Ken who works at one of these unicorns, right? Um, they have the engineering time to serve the rest of the world by doing this for us, I think, um, by going out and pulling these open source data sets. No, I mean, seriously, there's, there's data sets like uh, Scans.io, the, the ZMAP folks, they publish that data. Uh, HD Moore from, you know, Metasploit, he's now got a project called Project Sonar, um, which collects and stores this data. Uh, AWS hosts this data. I don't know who collects it, but it's hosted on AWS for free called uh, Common Crawl. So you can go out and pull this data and start asking questions of this massive sets of data. So it's not like, you know, something you can knock out in a weekend. They are huge data sets, but you can go start asking questions of this data and go, okay, I own this IP block. Show me any hosts that exist in that IP block. Let me go pull data about it. Or I own this domain. Go show me anything in this domain that exists, right? And you can start pivoting from there. Um, and so weirdly, I think uh, blue and red teams to work together, the questions of poking through this data really well, right? That's where they live, uh, particularly red teams that are doing, you know, network pen testing. And so they can tell us how to take these open source data sets and start finding out information. Uh, it's not a small investment of effort, but it's a place where I think we should go. Uh, and I do think hopefully some vendors are going to start seeing it and popping up, but it's, it's a really freaking hard problem. I'm not gonna, not gonna lie. We've, we're struggling with it every day. Yeah. One person asked us, uh, or they asked you, how do you evaluate the quality of results from an open source SAS tool versus a commercial one? Which I mean, that's probably not an easy answer. To, how do you but, yeah. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> So I don't want to pick on any particular vendors, so I'll pick on all of them at one time. There's a there's a finding for log forging, uh, and it makes me want to punch every vendor in the throat when I see that finding, because 99% of people don't care about log forging, and that is not the most of their problems, but it's super easy to find, and it's rarely wrong. Because <laughs> <Right? laughs> like, uh, there's like two applications on Earth that don't have that problem. And so... Um, you know, the, the commercial vendors are incentivized and having worked for one, I don't have a problem saying this. They're incentivized to, to give you findings, right? Um, and some of them are incentivized to give you, they look at it as their mission to give you every single thing they can find. And that's just the answer. Um, and they don't vet them. Uh, other vendors have taken the route of, we want to give you only true positives and there's value add there in my mind, you know, depending on your organization and what you can afford. I think there's value add to uh, limited false positives, but vetting open source against commercial. The big difference is data flow. Um, just being honest, like we, we use um, in-house. Uh, and if you go look at the attack surface analyzer, uh, you can see that I'm using um, antler, which if you, if you are scared of static analysis, go read like the first couple chapters of the Antler book. Um, it's incredible project, Terrence Parr. Um, 
it, it's a it's a te- it's a good testament to a, an amount of work over 20 years. Um, but it's static analysis is actually not that scary. You build a grammar, and most times you don't even have to build the grammar if you're working with a popular language. It generates some code for you. You start working and playing with it. Um, so it's pretty pretty fun. And so I'm using it in that product. So it's not you know it's it's relatively approachable. Um, but the really hard problem is to to get from open source to commercial. The big difference is data flow. So if you want to find SQL injection, you have to track that from one place in the app through to somewhere else, and that is really really hard. Um, most open source tools do okay at what's called intra procedural. Um, and not really good at inter procedural, so they're not able to jump across methods. Um, that requires you to have like a a, um, a store of data to keep track of all this metadata, and it's kind of kind of painful. So most open source projects are good at what they're able to find, um, and they're good at giving you a way to write rules for yourself. So my push for open source tools is. Um, a friend of mine called it the Grepmaster 5000. <laughs> so start really easy. And one example of what we had, what we did in house, um, we had a PHP app, and we had some deserialization issues that I found in it. So we were using deserialize, and um, I said, you know, we can't use this. We have to use our own function. So our static analysis rule was grep. If you find deserialize in the app, that's a bug. Um, and you can do things like this with, you know, um, Breakman or, or in, I'm, I'm more in the kind of JVM world. So find bugs, sec find bugs, antler, like you can write your own rules to do these kind of things. Uh, and they're not terribly, terribly difficult. Um, but I would not try to build my own data flow analyzer unless you just want to do it as a PhD project or something. Uh, it's a lot of stinking work. Um, and there's a reason that it hasn't moved from commercial to open source. So um, trying to answer the original question, sorry. Uh, I think open source is good for the things that it's able to find. And usually it's, it's decent parity. Um, where static, where commercial products shine is in data flow and the amount of rules that they cover. They have armies of people that are just writing rules uh, to keep up to date to cover. That's that's hard to emulate in an open source product. Um, but for your app, it's not that hard, right? Because you may only care about those things. And once you encode a rule, um, it's there. Um, so we, we've taken the tact. And I, I stole the idea. I don't remember who I heard say it first. Um, but of switching from this find everything and, and tell you all the findings, which we still do, but we do that as kind of an asynchronous process. But we've switched to the view of, you must be this high to ride. <laughs> you, you can push an app as long as it doesn't have these seven or 12 or 42 problems. And every, every month or quarter or whatever, we're adding new rules to that list. And so we, we know that we're constantly raising the bar. So anybody who's going through our CI is getting better and better and having to fix more and more issues um, and at least we have some measure of confidence that we don't have deserialized in our PHP apps, right? Like that's some sort of a win. Sorry, I got a yeah. little soapboxy there. <laughs> no, no, that, I, I mean that's that's why we have you on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that, that's exactly what we you know we we were interested in hearing was how you've how you've implemented it, right? I, it, like that always goes back to. Um, like I've always pushed more on like the CI/CD platforms and like yeah. QA testing. Yep. Hey, guess what? You can easily check for deserialize. You can easily sure. check for you know some some of like the string concatenation techniques yep. in SQL. 
people, right? Like, you know that they exist if there's plus signs, if there's other things. And guess what? You don't need to build a whole AST to actually identify that. So why not just use grep? Why not just use the tools that you have that are available? And, you know, and then look at the static analysis tools from the commercial side in a different light as a, all right, we do this once in a while or we do it as a stopgap or however else you need to, 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 to do it. But if you know the application, you're going to be able to identify those vulnerabilities way quicker than a static analysis tool is. Right? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I, I love the QA idea. One, one thing that we were really, that I, I you know, kind of fell into uh, luckily was uh, the, the org that I joined, they had this really unique thing that I've not seen before where they kind of had um, uh, rotations. So if you were on the dev team, you would rotate into QA for a while and, and vice versa. Um, and so there was there were some benefits of cross training, and that was just something that existed there. Um, and we had a QA person who wanted to get more into dev, or a couple of them actually. And I said, "Hey, um, I've got some security stuff you can work on if you want." And they actually, I didn't touch it. They wrote the entire automation for um, getting Zap into our uh, daily scans of our app. And they were, you know, they were turned on by it because it was like development work. They were able to kind of flex their muscles there uh, instead of having to go on a rotation. They just went on my rotation. Um, and like you said, all this knowledge was in their head. They knew how to do this. And they were able to both QA it kind of on a, a manual cycle for a little bit. And then they got it into the automation. Uh, and it's we've been benefiting from that for a year and a half now, right? Um, so huge wins. If, if you just kind of think about who's already doing stuff and who's got the kind of the shortest path to solving this problem, it's not always the security team. Um, no. It ra rarely is the security team, I think. Yeah. And, and like I've harped on it for a while because, you know, I came up kind of through a development platform or a right. development career path. Sure. And I always looked at it and I'm like, hey, we, we write rules to do UI tests. Right. Right. Why, why am I like reinventing the wheel or purchasing some really expensive tool to exactly. go send security payloads to my application? I, I, exactly. Go, go play with FuzzDB, you know, or generate yeah. your own. It's not that difficult of it. Well, I mean, it is a difficult problem to solve, but it's not like that portion of it is not as difficult, especially when you engage those QA testers. Um, so. Yeah, and it's it's silly to hoard that information. Like, um, it it it's so useful in their hands, and they they've already got the knowledge. Like, why are you know, um, I I try to I try to shove every bit of I try to replicate myself with everybody that I work with, because you yeah. know I mean, I mean people will impress you if you give them a chance. I think, um, or at least a lot of people will. Um, and, and when they get excited about something, they can do amazing things and what, you know, why not benefit from that? Like, there's nothing that says I have to be the one clicking the button. And matter of fact, I would rather not be the one, you know, uh, I want to think about how to solve the next problem. So, yeah. So tell me a little bit about the attack analyzer project, right? Uh, that, that sounds incredibly relevant to, you know, source code review and the stuff that, you know, just from a risk perspective that I look at on a daily basis. Um, yeah, but um, like I haven't did. Did we find a link for that one, Ken? It's it's GitHub.com/slash/jtmelton, and then I think it's called Attack Surface Analyzer. Um, so uh, I should also mention as we've as I've moved up to uh, Netsuite, my role has changed. So I, I changed back in uh, February, six months ago, seven months ago. Um, 
from being at the, uh, the smaller company up to the NetSuite proper. And so one of the things we're really trying to focus on, and we actually just got a rec, uh, is pushing more of our stuff uh, open source. Um, I'm obviously a big believer in open source um, and have been doing it for a long, long time. Um, and our management is is a big believer um, uh, and, and actually has contributed open source code. So that's really a good situation to be in. So we're going to try to push more of it out. Um, there's a couple projects that are out there. Um, one I'll be talking about soon. Um, so uh, I don't really have a whole lot to share on it just yet, but um, you know, uh, it's about trying to work with some third-party library work. Uh, but the Attack Surface Analyzer, um, I should also mention there's one available, uh, a sim very similar implementation that's got more, uh, more uh, meat on the bones, and that's part of ThreadFix. And I don't remember okay. what it's called, but Dan Cornell was, uh, he had talked about it a few years ago. I had written this internally in-house, and then Dan announced this. We were talking about it at the conference, and I said, oh man, you know, I've had this in-house and it's so useful. Uh, I'm glad you put it out there. So they've got a product that's out there, but it's, I think it's, um, I'm not sure whether it's separate, standalone or what, and, and how frequently it gets updated, but it is available. Um, so Attack Surface Analyzer, it's the first cut for now. Um, I think it covers Node.js uh, Express right now, and it covers uh, Jax RS in Java. Um, and so basically it just spits out this data. I think there's a text emission and a JSON emission, and then you can start munging the data. Um, but yeah, it's just, it takes an antler, it wraps antler and calls it to, to operate on the source code, and then it'll spit that data out for you. Um, and you can then take that data and, you know, munge it however you want. If you want to use it in uh, feeding, like what we use it for is feeding our uh, pen testing group metadata about these are the routes that exist, so you can pre-code those uh, or preload those. And then we use it on our engineering team to determine um, both areas where we might need to go do a follow-up design review if somebody didn't get us in place first and uh, where we may need to go do code reviews. Um, so if we're unfamiliar with a piece of code, um, then we can go do that. And plus just having that data stored, I mean, it's this much text, right? Like it's not, <laughs> it's not obscene. Yeah. You can store it forever, um, which is another really nice thing because you can trend data and you can see how your application changed and grew over time. You can do visualizations, all that stuff that's really cool to managers to see. Um, but uh, we're going to try to start uh, pushing out more of these open source kind of point projects. Uh, I'm a big believer in the Unix style of you stitch, stitch it together how you want to. Um, but we're going to try to push out more of these point projects that solve these individual problems um, because you know we're having to solve them and there's no reason a lot of it's not proprietary, so there's no reason it can't be public. So, um, yeah, I think that'll that tool will continue to grow. And if people have languages or frameworks they want to see supported, you know, let us know, and we'll try to we'll try to get some support in there. All of them? No, that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the problem, right? Um, yeah. So no, no, definitely, because I like I, I started going down a uh, a hole, you know, as I pulled up the project. I'm like, oh, sweet, yep, I can see JavaScript, I can see Java in there. Yep. But then I'm also thinking, oh man, like your .NET Core, your .NET, your ASP.NET applications, right? It's just, I mean, but at least you've got a start, and that's, uh, yeah, that that that's where it's super helpful. I, I mean, I know Ken and I can push, you know, what we know about some of the open source app or like the like Ruby and Django, there's other ways to retrieve right. that information that you won't necessarily need to code something that scans every 
every yeah. piece of those applications. Right. Uh, but it would be extremely useful, right? That's you know, as we talk about code reviews, that's one of the hardest things to 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 get people to do is actually yeah. dig into the source and figure out what all those routes are. Because if you don't know what the routes are, you don't know where your where your threats are. You don't know where to start. So right. And and you think about uh, you know we were talking about having an app inventory. Uh, in my mind, the way I visualize visualize it is just basically a key value store, right? Like, I mean, you probably are gonna have some specific things, but give me a key value store where the key is the application or the application identifier, and just let me throw crap at it. <laughs> like, let me throw attack surface analyzer, right? Um, at this this particular application, the key is attack surface analysis, and here's the, here's the value, just a blob of text. Um, let me throw dependency check scans at it. Let me throw breakman scans at it, right? And then I'll come back and ask for that data and analyze it. Um, but you know, there's things like how do we analyze third-party libraries? How do we analyze, um, you know, like we're we're talking about routes? How do you analyze um, cyclomatic complexity, right? Developers may be interested in that. Um, test coverage, all those kind of things matter, and all of those things describe the health of an application. So why not put put them in one place and you know, start start tracking that health and and kind of giving people a grade or a scorecard that they can that they can work against. Yeah, yeah it's funny you brought up cyclomatic complexity. It made me think of not that the two are related, but it didn't. Uh, they're not related, but it did make <laughs> me think of uh, someone talking about code churn as a sort of yeah. like because cyclomatic complexity, like that's that's just how complex the the software is. But it made me think about the fact that like. Um, we've talked about using like code churn, how often something changes yeah. as being sort of a metrics metric for like, if it's going to potentially have a security concern. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that. Um, I, I think that's a good, it, it may not be a hundred percent accurate, but it feels like you're throwing a dart on the dartboard at least. Right. Like it feels fairly accurate. Um, and to me, that's, that's what we should be doing, right? Like let's start collecting data. Cause right now we don't, you don't know what you don't know. And we don't collect any of this stuff, right? I don't know about you at GitHub, but I don't collect any of this stuff or I'm starting to, but, um, I can't answer questions about, I, I don't have a good feeling about what's the security of these hundreds of applications. Why can't I get some form of metadata that will start answering that and developers care. You know, if you give them a place right. to store this information, they care. Look at their CI dashboard. They've got they've got test coverage as one of the metrics that they're tracking. Um, so all these developer metrics, security should care about them, right? Um, and so, like you, Seth, I mean, I think about stuff in a very developer way because I've been a developer for so long. Um, and I think we can exploit a lot of that in security and get huge lift um, if we just kind of ask them what they're doing and ask them how they would solve a problem. Um, yeah. Well, piggyback on top of what they're already doing, right? For I sure. Mean, I, I don't. I don't know what it is about security that we feel like we need to, you know, resolve all of these problems, right? You know. Yep. I, you know, well, I, I realize that we security is kind of a, you know, a sexy topic or whatever, and it, right. it allows us to actually like build something and sell it for more money or or whatever. But if you're embedded in an organization, there's no reason why you need to write your own scanner, your own test right. suite. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. 
my my favorite story, my favorite like uh, visual image of that is when, and I don't mean to pick on a vendor, but it's the it's the best story I know. Uh, IBM years ago um, had it was ounce. I think they had converted to IBM by that point, and they put out a um, they put out an article, and you can probably still find it somewhere where they were talking about. Um, they had had the IBM R&D team, not the security team, but their like static or their um, CS R&D team come in and look at the uh, <laughs> look at the static analyzer for false positives. And I forget what the exact thing they were looking for. I think it was uh, cross-site scripting. And they were able to reduce their cross-site scripting false positive rate by something like 99.64% or something. And they were they basically said they did this complex strings analysis where they built all the strings up to this one giant table and you know what Fortify calls trust boundary violation. So when you're shipping data around and you've got it tagged with a key, they linked the key and said, you know, when this goes over here, we can track now and know that this going here and this going here are two different pieces of data or they're the same. So they bragged in this paper about a 99.64% reduction. And I just, I remember being dumbstruck and thinking, why would you brag about that? Like, that should be quietly a bug fix that you never tell anybody on earth. Like, you should not be bragging. That, I, I just don't understand that. And why I'm convinced that if security was more of a market driver where, um, you know, you think about how much money IBM makes off developers and how much they make off security, and it's just a pittance, Right. If if it got to a point where it was worth that much money and develop like hordes of developers started looking at it, I think our products would change like in a couple of years and, and they would look vastly different. And I think the the place to look at that is when you look at uh, monitoring, right? Monitoring has fundamentally changed in um, in the cloud and DevOps and that whole you know chain of events that's happened the last 10 years. Uh, monitoring looks fundamentally different. And security gets so much for free there, <laughs> so much for free, just because developers are already doing it and we can piggyback. Um, if you think about that kind of um, kind of fundamental sea change happening in other places in security, it, it would look like a different world, right? Um, I think we're very, very immature and NASA in security. Um, so, I mean, we're getting better, but I think I think if you if you look at static analysis, you'll note that the number of new frameworks coming out in the world uh, highly exceeds the rate at which those are being covered by products. <laughs> so well, the yeah the yeah. change is glacial. Yeah, it is. I I mean I, I always love looking at all right like I, I don't mean to pick on them, but like the the, the Node Security Project that the Lyft Security guys that got acquired yeah. by. You know, they're now a part of the central NPM team, right. which is great. That's exactly what you want to see. For sure. But then, you know, they, they do security review of NPM modules. I'm like, right. look, there's, you know, there's two or three of you. And there's, <laughs> I mean, there's eight to 900 new modules a day. Right. And like, I know you're automating some of it. I'm just like, I, I'm very right. skeptical that... <laughs> That we're catching everything that we need to. Yes, you're you're putting out great work, and I like I don't want to take that away from them. Right. But I I just like I'm like the, the problem is so much bigger. Right. Uh, and yeah. I mean I'm I'm like I and I know that they'll get some like added benefits from being part of that central team that's actually looking at things 
at a lower level. So. Well, yeah. I mean, did you see like NSP is deprecated now? NSP is yeah. gone. And, yeah. uh, and um, it's just, I guess, I think that there's it's now NPM on. audit, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, so now you get alerted if you installed something. I think that was the way. We should have Adam Baldwin on anyways, and he can just tell us all about this stuff, and we can pick his, see how he's doing it and what the challenges are and how they're facing them and stuff. We should. I'll reach out to Adam. We'll definitely extend an invite. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. No, but John, I like that's like it's super interesting, right? I, I mean, I know we've been going for hour and 20, 25 minutes or something like that, so we'll be wrapping it up here pretty quick, but – you know, I, I really appreciate your perspective on implementing this and like what you've been doing internally. Like I do, I'm really excited about the attack service analysis tool because Ken and I have been talking about something similar for a long time. And it's like, oh, great. Uh, well, we could probably just do some pull requests here and maybe <laughs> yeah, get and ourselves if, off the ground, right? So Yeah, I think, um, I, I think it's, uh, and, and certainly, you know, pull requests are great. Um, and even issues is great, right? Like knowing what people need and will use um, is, is killer for an open source project. And you don't release open source projects. I, I learned this when I started blogging a long time ago. I didn't blog for people to read my blog. I blogged because I was hopping jobs and I forgot what I was doing, right? So I would do something at work and then I'd go home and do a white box version of it and post it so that when I went to my next job, I would remember what I needed to remember. Um, so the same thing for, for open source, right? Like I think, I think, um, uh, hoarding security information is just ridiculous to me. Um, we, <laughs> uh, relatively are failing. Um, I, I don't, I think watching the, the, the normal news channel will teach you that like, uh, we can't say that we're doing an awesome job. Um, collectively as a community, right? Like there are a few standout companies that are doing great, but even they are going to have issues. Um, but collectively as a community, I think we are um, not not doing uh, a stellar job. And so we should be helping each other like as much as possible we should be. And why do I have to rewrite the same thing? Or why should you have to rewrite the same thing when you switch jobs or, you know, um, like, okay, Rails is not going to change the way they do routing every 30 minutes, right? Like they're going to change on releases, right? And and so let's solve that problem one time and then help. I mean, how many people would be helped by that, right? So, um, yeah, so I, I, I'm ranting at this point, but yes, I, I believe in it. <laughs> I believe in open source as, a, as an enabler uh, for doing better security. I mean, I think you're seeing companies share more and more information, you know, certainly like, the yeah, I think one of the the, the again some a conversation that came up at CactusCon was around Ryan. Gosh, I can't remember his last name, but Ryan from Slack and his whole uh, um, logging setup that Huber. he explained. Yeah, Ryan Huber. Thank you. Yep. Who again? We should probably invite on as well. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think, but I mean, you're definitely in like Netflix. They're sharing a lot of their open source code in there. Yeah, for sure. Sauce, you know, they're uh, so I do think there's there's some sharing there for sure, but static and now anything I think that the reality is that anytime there's money in the line, like yeah. I give you this stuff, then like I don't make money or the company I work for doesn't make money, right. it's always going to impede progress. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, but I mean, I think uh, as we get more developers in, as we get more QA people in, uh, we're starting to share the, 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 you know, we're starting to accumulate brain power. Um, and some of that cranial horsepower can be put to good use um, by, by sharing the information. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I push people to, to open source stuff as much as possible. There are, <laughs> there are fiscal uh, motivations sometimes that prevent that, but, you know, I'm in a good place right now where we can start doing it. So we're going to. Um, awesome. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm a realist. I get that there's business there, but at the same time, um, yeah, yeah, like you said, some things can certainly be shared. So yeah, for sure. Well, we thank you. Uh, seriously, we thank you for your time. I get the sense that we could probably all sit around for about three or four hours. What's the next conference that you're going to? Um, I am traveling the next few weeks. Uh, so I'll be at AppSec uh, USA in next week, I guess. Um, and then <clears throat> more limited, I'll be at BSIM uh, the week after. And then I will be at, um, I forget the name of it, uh, Gene Kim's ta uh, conference, uh, DevOps Enterprise Summit and uh, LastCon Uh so I'll be at those four and then I, I'm hoping to be done for the rest of the year. <laughs> uh, yeah. Last they, a favorite awesome. of ours. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. So if y'all are, uh, if y'all are at any of those, I will happily get together and, and Jack jaw about this for a lot longer. Um, because I have, uh, I have thoughts and ideas. So, uh, and if anybody needs, um, some ideas for commercial opportunities. I have lots of those too, but I try to try to keep those quiet. <laughs> Not for me. I just mean, I, you know, uh, right. I'm not no. all that. What, what day are you getting into AppSec USA? Uh, I'm driving over Wednesday. We're actually going into the office Monday, Tuesday, and we're hosting an internal security con at Oracle. Um, so that should be a that should be a good time. Uh, we're trying to get people in and and do internal information sharing too. So it should be good. But yeah, we'll be driving up Wednesday. I think I'll. Uh, I'm going to end up missing you. I'm flying out Tuesday night uh, after Seth and I's training. Um, okay. But uh, eh, no worries. It, I would say, and actually, let me let me promote AppSec Cali for a second because they're they're coming up soon, and they've got a call for training and a call for uh, papers. They should uh, you should definitely submit because you can't go wrong. You live in Charlotte, right? Yeah, yeah. So like you know what it's like to be dealing, or I guess it's probably not as bad. Obviously, you're more south, but like. Yeah, the winter in anywhere but Santa Monica sucks. So <laughs> go there in January and yes. you're going to have your time. So, um, but yeah, the call for papers and call for trainings out. But if you do that one, uh, you know, okay, I'll, we might see you there. So, gotcha. Yeah. And we're uh, trying to make it out there. If not, uh, I'll definitely be trying to come back to Locomoco. Uh, that was a good time. So, <laughs> heck yeah, me too. I want to get the, I want to still go back again. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I had one last, um, recommendation I was going to make for your listeners. I, I've, uh, I do listen to y'all. So, uh, thank y'all for putting all this stuff on. Um, but, uh, something that I try to recommend to a lot of security people, uh, just because it's not necessarily in our wheelhouse. Uh, but I, it's one of the most useful things that I've seen. Uh, so have y'all seen, uh, like papers we love or systems we love? Have you seen that? No, I'm googling it now yeah so papers we love and systems we love are um communities kind of like you know um kind of like you might have local OWASP chapters um they're groups of people in different areas that do that read 
computer science papers or whatever, and they talk about different, uh, the systems we love was kind of a spinoff of that. Um, so super interesting. But then there's a guy, uh, Adrian Collier. Um, I think his last name is C-O-L-Y-E-R. Um, he used to work at, like if you're familiar with Spring, the Spring framework, uh, Spring yeah. Source. He was the CTO of that company, Pivotal, for like 15 years, way back before they were Pivotal. Um, oh, wow. And the dude is just crazy smart. I think he's like a VC now, but he does a service called uh, the morning paper and he takes some computer science paper and writes a blog post almost every day. And um, he kind of dumbs it down for people like me so that I can actually understand. And, you know, he makes, it's, it's just kind of a one pager. So you can usually read them in two or three minutes, but uh, the exposure you get to different topics and he covers a lot of security too. Um, so there's always interesting stuff there. Um, but the exposure you get to different topics is just fascinating. So for anybody who's interested in like, you know, up in their game and doing research and all that kind of stuff, it's the most useful thing that I've found. And it's only been going a couple of years. Um, so I used to go back and like print out, you know, ArcSiv papers <laughs> and like read all these old computer science papers because they're smart, you know, like there's a lot of value there, but it's just so much work. Uh, and that guy's doing a bunch of the work for you. So um, I always try to try to promote his free thing. So awesome. And what, I'm sorry, what was the name? I'm trying to find, what was the Adrian name? Adrian Collier, C-O-L-Y-E-R. Um, I think cool. is his name. If not, I'll send it to you afterwards. Um, uh, but no, it's that, yeah, that's it. I, the morning I paper. It. Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. Blog.acollier.org. Yep. Yeah. And he has a, he has a Twitter handle, so you can just follow him and see his posts every day. Um, and uh, yeah, man, it's just, it seems like a mountain of work to have to do that, uh, that type of assessment and write up, but it's always super interesting to me. Um, and, you know, it gets you exposure to like, there's a couple things that I've gone through there and I thought, man, that's cool. I wonder if that would work. And I've stolen ideas from research papers uh, that he did a write up on that have helped, you know, in my day-to-day -day work. And so um, always, always good to see what other people are doing in the field. Definitely, definitely is. Cool. Well, again, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank um, you. Yeah, if there's, you know, we'd love to have you back on. I mean, it, it does feel like we could spend another hour and a half talking at, the very, at a minimum, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I've never we'll had chat. a we'll, talking. <laughs> Yeah. I, I don't think we do much either. Right? <laughs> Obviously, you know. Nice. Ken's a little quiet sometimes, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually uh, tweeting. Oh. Whoa. <laughs> Oh, we, we, we lost him. <laughs> he, he disconnected. He had yeah. control W. <laughs> exactly. No, no more talking for Ken. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, yeah, I, I think we can, we'll go ahead and close it out for tonight. Uh, Ken and I will be at AppSec USA for the training as well. He'll probably join back up here shortly or yeah. his system completely died. Uh, and then uh, I'll, I'll probably be there. I'm there until Thursday. So watch okay. for me. Yeah. Um, Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. No worries. We, we just kept going. Cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we're going to sync up at AppSec USA. And otherwise, uh, join our conversation. If you want to join the Slack channel, we'll have this episode posted shortly. Um, uh, yeah. I think that's everything. Uh, stick around for just a minute after we stop the broadcast. Yeah. And we'll, we'll go from there. Thanks, everybody, awesome. for joining us tonight um, and for asking questions and interacting. Thanks, Ken. Great. Thank you all.